Lord God, we do need you so desperately, more than we can ever fathom or think every moment, every minute, every second of our life, God. We need you to carry us, to sustain us, God, to give us hope. And so, Lord God, we depend on you this morning. We're here to, to celebrate you, to receive from you, and to draw upon the life that you offer us, God. And so we invite you to do that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, go ahead and have a seat. So it's uh, springtime, glorious springtime. And many of you, uh, like me, have gone out to start a garden. You know, out of the backyard, you know, you're out there tilling the soil and pulling up the weeds and you're bending, amending, and spending, spending, spending. <laughs> You know, all that work to look forward to those glorious, fresh, succulent vegetables, you know, all that work and you wait and you water and you wait and you water and then the little sprouts come up, right? And then all of a sudden you see those vegetables begin to form and they're just beautiful and glorious and just when you're ready to pick them, some gopher comes along and sucks them onto the ground. (laughs) Daddy's got a little pellet gun for you. How about you go for that? (laughs) So as we've been studying the book of Galatians, we've seen that the Apostle Paul traveled throughout the area of Galatia, what we know today as Turkey, and he went out there and he planted churches with the gospel of grace. And then soon after he left, these Judaizers came in with a plow of legalism, and they pulled up everything that Paul had planted and sowed seeds of doubt and confusion into these young believers. And this was a challenge that Paul faced wherever he went. You know, he would go out there and he'd share the gospel, and sure enough, the Judaizers would come in to try to destroy it. And Paul warned all of these young churches that Satan, their enemy, would try to destroy their faith by adding to the gospel... So that it no longer was the gospel at all. You see, legalism would turn them into slaves trying over and over again through works-based religion to try to please God and become right with him. You know, so often we take this bait of legalism because it kind of appeals to our own, you know, insecurities that we have in our relationship with God. And this treadmill of legalism, right? I mean, haven't we all experienced this? That it's lethal because it causes guilt and exhaustion, and shame. And it tends to drive people further away from God than it draws anyone to him. You know, many of you might be familiar with Ernest Hemingway. Here's a picture of him. You know, Ernest Hemingway, he was a Nobel Prize winning author, a famous author, famous for his books, The Old Man and the Sea, and For Whom the Bell Tolls. Both are considered to be, you know, works of American literature. And the story of Hemingway's early life, it really is a great example of the poisonous power of legalism. You see, Hemingway's grandparents, they were devout, devout Christians. You know, they went to to Wheaton College in Illinois, and Hemingway's own parents, they were professing Christians, but their version of Christianity had been poisoned into the shadow of, of judgment and rules and regulations. You know, when, when Hemingway was starting to grow up as a young man, he started to live this licentious lifestyle, and his mother called him a sinner, and she forbid him from even being in her presence at all. Later in his life, on his birthday, his mother 
mailed him a cake along with the gun that his father had used to commit suicide. Another year later, she wrote him a letter explaining that a mother's life is like a bank. You see, as a young child, a young child you know, receives all the time, making withdrawals and no deposits. And then as the child grows up, it's his you know, duty to then make those deposits back and to draw the account back into balance. And so she proceeded to spell out all these things that young Ernest was supposed to do to help you know, pay off his debt. Things like you know, sending her candy and fruits and flowers and, of course, paying mother's bills. <laughs> and above all, she wrote, a determination to stop neglecting your duties to God and your Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, Ernest Hemingway grew to hate his mother and her religion all the way until the day of his death on July 2nd, 1920, or 1961, when he committed suicide. You see, legalism drives so many people away from Christ. And either for those of us who are Christians, right, legalism just tends to strangle the very life out of us. You know, it's like we come to Jesus and we feel like he says to us, okay, now go and make something of your life, right? And then he, he sits up there and looks down at us and just sort of shakes his head. And each time we fail, we just feel condemned. And we wonder how God would ever allow us into heaven. And if he did, he'd probably be so disappointed with what we did with our life. That's the sting of legalism. And that's why Paul was so passionate to protect the gospel of grace. And it wasn't just an, an ancient old problem that Paul dealt with hundreds of years ago. This is something that we deal with every single day of our own lives. And so I want you to, if there's an outline there in your program, and if you open that up, I want you to write down this first point here so that you'll remember it. And that's this. Only grace sets us free, and true freedom is worth protecting. So we're going to take a look at how we can protect God's grace in our own lives and also in the lives of others. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and take that out and turn to the book of Galatians. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, I want to encourage you to you know, just grab one out in the lobby later uh, and take that home with you as a gift. Uh, we want you to have a Bible. So again, we're going to look at Galatians 2, verses 1 to 10. And here's the first part, how we protect God's grace. We protect the unity of grace. We protect the unity of grace. As I mentioned, you know, one of the strategies of Satan, the enemy, is to distort the message of grace. Another scheme is to stir division so that grace itself is undermined. You know, these Judaizers, first they attacked the message, but then they attacked the messenger. And they were calling Paul an imposter because he wasn't one of the 12 disciples. They were trying to cause division that way. And as Pastor Ron mentioned last week when we studied the end of the first chapter, you know, Paul, what his defense was is that God had called him on the road to Damascus. And now he's saying how he went back even to Jerusalem later to confer with the disciples in Jerusalem that they had a united message. And so this is Galatians 2, 1 and 2. It says, then 14 years later, Paul speaking, I went back to Jerusalem again, this time with Barnabas and Titus came along too. I went there because God revealed to me that I should go. And while I was there, I met privately with those considered to be leaders of the church and shared with them the message I've been preaching to the Gentiles. I wanted to make sure that we were in agreement 
for fear that all my efforts had been wasted and I was running the race for nothing. This was a big moment. You know, Paul had been out there preaching the gospel to the Gentiles for 14 years. And the Gentiles were responding in droves, which really kind of freaked the Jews out. These Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, it overwhelmed them. I mean, wasn't Jesus the Jewish Messiah? You know, aren't the Jews the chosen people? What about the laws of Moses? Shouldn't these Gentiles be circumcised? This whole thing's getting out of control. Oy vey, we're going to run out of bagels. <laughs> there was a lot of pressure being put on this Jerusalem council to make this right. And on the other hand, this was a high stakes for Paul. All of these years of ministry, it could all fall apart and all be in vain. So when Paul went to Jerusalem, he took two traveling companions. The first was Barnabas. And maybe you've heard that name before in the book of Acts. Barnabas was a respected Christian in Jerusalem. You remember in the very beginning of the, of the formation of the church, there was Barnabas who sold his property and gave the proceeds to the needy. In addition to that, Acts 11.24 tells us that Barnabas was a good man, filled with the Holy Spirit and faith. So Paul brings Barnabas as sort of saying, look, here's Barnabas. You know him. You trust him. We both follow the moral Jewish law. In addition to that, he can testify to you that as I go and share the gospel with these Gentiles, that the Holy Spirit opens their hearts and they come to Jesus by faith. <laughs> and then Paul also brought this guy, Titus. Now here's Titus, and he's a living, breathing example of a full-blooded, uncircumcised Gentile. <laughs> the result of Paul's ministry. And he wanted the Jerusalem council to just see in the flesh that whatever they were saying Gentile Christians needed to be circumcised, they were talking about Titus here. And Titus is shaking his head, yeah. <laughs> and Titus, you see, he trusted in Jesus. And he's resting in God's work. Is Jesus enough? Or does Titus need something else to make him acceptable to God? Everything was riding on this decision. See, Paul's argument was that nothing is added to Jesus to be acceptable to God. And so why would we add any type of conditions before we accept another Christian? Ephesians 4, 3 and 4 tells us that Paul urges us that we are to protect unity. It says this. He says, make every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit. Binding yourselves together with peace there's one body, one spirit, just as you've been called to one glorious hope and future. The message of grace unites us and strengthens us. And that's why if you look a little further back in your Bible, you'll see that there's a book called Titus. That's our guy right here. You see, unity encouraged and strengthens us. Titus went on to pastor his own church in Crete. That's the power of unity. Now, we're also told that we're to protect the message of grace. Protect the message of grace. Protecting the message of grace is, is standing up to legalism and rejecting it for what it is. A distortion of grace. So we're going to look at what happened when Paul and Barnabas and Timothy showed up to this meeting in Jerusalem. Galatians 2, 3 through 6 says this. Paul's saying, and they supported me. And did not even demand that my companion Titus be circumcised, though he was a Gentile. 
Even that question came up only because some of the so-called Christians there, the false ones really, who were secretly brought in. They sneaked in to spy on us and take away the freedom we have in Christ Jesus. They wanted to enslave and force us to follow their Jewish regulations. But we refused to give in to them for a single moment. We wanted to preserve the truth of the gospel message for you. And the leaders of the church had nothing to add to what I was preaching. By the way, the reputation as great leaders made no difference to me, for God has no favorites. So, you may be asking yourself this awkward question, what is all this business about circumcision? <laughs> I mean, we don't get it because it's not a, an issue that we deal with in the church today. But in the very early um, beginnings of the church, as the church rose out of Judaism, this was the main big issue. You see, from the time that the Jewish nation began under Abraham, circumcision was designated as a sign of being part of the Jewish community. And every young Jewish baby was circumcised at eight days old. And it's interesting that under Jewish law, that any male Gentile who came to, wanted to convert to Judaism was also told to be circumcised. And there's several reasons that circumcision was so important to the Jews. First, it was commanded by God in the Old Testament. It signified the covenant between God and the Jewish people. And being performed on the reproductive organ, it symbolized the propagation or continuance of that covenant. Circumcision was a very personal sign that a man was set apart to God. And it was a reminder to him that in his most personal and intimate moments, he should glorify God with his body. So if you think about it, it's not too difficult to understand you know, why the Jews thought that the Gentile converts should be circumcised. I mean, this certainly would be a good thing to do. But here's the problem, and it has to do with the very purpose of the law itself. And this really does relate to us because it helps us to identify legalism around us and also even within our own hearts. So we have to understand that there are different parts of the law and the purpose of the law. First, there was the moral law of God, the moral law of God. And these are things that we find, you know, like the Ten Commandments, do not murder, to worship God alone, don't commit adultery. You know, moral laws help uh, define God's standard to the people. And they also, the moral law set uh, God's people apart morally. So we got the moral law. Kind of think of a crossover here. <laughs> then there were also ceremonial laws or things that were known as clean laws. Kind of think of a cannibal Isol on this side, all right? Clean laws. Now, the ceremonial laws set the people apart culturally. And so these were detailed instructions about their food and how they were to dress and other practices, including circumcision, that caused the Jewish people to look different, to act different, and to live differently. Cultural laws. These laws identified the Jewish people as set apart to God, and they caused them to be culturally distinct, and they discouraged them from intermingling with some of the other pagan religions around them that would influence them. You know, the laws made it difficult for them to enter into contracts with others and to bind themselves in marriage with people who would draw their hearts away from God. Another thing that the ceremonial law did is it helped to show them that God was holy, that God was holy, and we can only come to him if we're cleansed from our impurities. And so all of these cleanly laws, you know, they were just dozens and dozens and dozens of them, made it clear that it was impossible to make yourself 
pure before God on your own. Because no matter how you tried and tried and tried to do all these laws, when you came later to the tabernacle, even then, someone had to make a sacrifice for you. A blood offering had to be made. You had to be atoned for all that work, and you still weren't good enough. It's kind of like the guy that um, he was speeding in Missouri. And after the deputy pulled him over, he told the officer that he was a juggler. He was on his way to Branson to do his show that night. He didn't want to be late. So the deputy, he really liked juggling. And he said, you know, if you do some juggling for me, I'll let you off of the ticket. Well, the driver told him, you know, unfortunately, all his equipment had gone ahead in a car ahead of him. He didn't have anything to juggle with. So the deputy said, just a minute. He went back to his squad car, came back with a handful of flares, said, how about these? So he lit the flares, gave them to the, the guy. The guy starts juggling, right? All of a sudden, a car pulls behind the squad car. Out stumbles a drunk guy. He watches for a little while. Then he walks back to the squad car, opens the back door, closes it. Officer goes back to the squad car, opens the door, and asks the drunk, what in the world are you doing? Drunk guy says, well... Officer, you might as well take me to jail right now. I can't pass that test. <laughs> and that's exactly what God's law was intended to do to us, is to help us come to grip with the idea that we can never perform enough to be perfect before a holy God. You see, we are stubborn and hard-hearted, and we're hell-bent on being independent from him. And God mercifully gave us his law to help us understand our need for him. So Romans 5, 21 and 21 tells us the purpose of God's law. It says, God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. But as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. So just as sin ruled over all people and brought them to death, now God's wonderful grace rules instead, giving us right standing with God and resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. See, it brings God such incredible pleasure to reveal to us our need for Jesus Christ and then to save us. But see, where the Judaizers and legalists go wrong is that instead of allowing the law, right, to draw them to God, what they do instead is they flip it and they use all these rules and regulations to teach the exact opposite thing, that we can make ourselves pure and more acceptable to God by doing all the rules, by strictly following all the laws. Legalism takes the unattainable goal and it makes it a rule. Legalism is an attempt to gain acceptance through performance. And it's such a trap because how can you ever know how much you've, if you've ever done enough to fully please God? It drives us into guilt and fear and resentment. And here is really where the rubber meets the road. It causes us to rely on ourselves rather than rely on God. There's a really great um, illustration that um, Pastor Matt Chandler has used, and, it, and uh, it really has helped me, but it also applies to my own life. And he says, you see, the law has every right to reveal the commands of God to me, 
to show how he designed the universe to work. But the law has no ability to save me from my failure to obey it. You see, the law is diagnostic, but it's not a cure. So three years ago, I had this incredible pain in my abdomen. And I thought, well, maybe it's just the burger I had earlier. But it kept coming and got worse. And I drove myself to the hospital. And uh, sure enough, they sent me to do an MRI scan. And the MRI showed that I had a problem. My appendix had burst. Now, the MRI had no ability to cure me, right? It only diagnosed that something was wrong. Many of us, what we do is we end up always being filled with such incredible guilt because we keep going back to the scan, see? The scan will always show you that you're sick. It cannot heal you. The scan will show you that you're a liar, that you're not holy enough. You're not good enough for God to forgive you. That's what the law does. It shows you that you need healing. But Jesus Christ is the cure. Jesus Christ is the cure. The law diagnoses, but Jesus cures. And when we receive Jesus Christ as our Savior, he gives us his righteousness, see? He takes away our condemnation, He comes to live inside us, and we are in him, and he is in us. And when God looks down and sees us, he sees us as pure and holy and right and blameless. Why? Because Jesus is. The law will show you your need for the Savior. And once you receive your Savior, you see, then the law, it switches, and it becomes a path to fullness of life. Jesus never abolished the law. He fulfilled the law. He fulfilled it. He met the requirements of the law for us. And now we can live in the power of grace, in the Holy Spirit that God has given us to live within us. That is the true message of grace, and it's worth protecting. Hmm. So next, we see that we're to protect the responsibility of grace. The responsibility of grace. You know, Paul understood that grace itself kind of has this sense of indebtedness to us, to it. You know, when we receive something so greatly undeserved, that gratitude leads us to want to extend that grace to others. So Galatians 2, 7 to 9 say this. Instead, they saw that God had given me the responsibility of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles just as he'd given Peter the responsibility of preaching to the Jews. For the same God who worked through Peter as as the apostle to the Jews also worked through me as the apostle to the Gentiles. In fact, James and Peter and John, who were known as pillars of the church, recognized the gift God had given me, and they accepted Barnabas and me as their co-workers. They encouraged us to keep preaching to the Gentiles while they continued their work with the Jews." Paul said that the council recognized that God had given him the responsibility to preach to the Gentiles. And these uh, apostles had accepted Paul and Barnabas as co-workers in the, the work of spreading the gospel. And see, just like the apostles, we also have been entrusted with the gospel. Not only to preserve it, but to share it. 
Jesus promised us that the Holy Spirit would come and fill us with power and we would be his witnesses. And I think it's fascinating, you know, that, that Paul saw himself as being indebted to sharing the gospel, even as a, an obligation. In Romans 1, 14 and 15, he expresses this. He says, I'm under obligation both to the Greeks and the barbarians, to the wise and to the foolish. Uh, so I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. You know, Paul's saying, I'm under obligation to everyone. So how is it that Paul views himself as in debt to make him obligated to others? John Stott, he says this, that there are two ways to be in debt. You know, one is the idea of maybe I borrow money from you. Okay, I come to you and I borrow some money, say $10,000. Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> and then I owe you to pay that money back, right? But there's another way that we can owe, and that's when a friend gives me $10,000 that I'm to give to you. Okay? Now, in that way, you see, I don't owe you the money, but I owe the debt that he's given uh, to me to pass on to you. And, he, and Stott says that this is, explains the sense in which Paul's in debt. You see, he hasn't borrowed anything from anyone that he needs to repay, but that Jesus Christ has entrusted him with the gospel for them. And that's the way that we're indebted to the world. The gospel has come to us, and we don't have a right to keep it to ourselves. We don't own it. You see, the good news is for sharing. We're under the obligation to share it with others. And that's how we protect the responsibility of grace. So maybe the next time you're walking through town or in the grocery store somewhere, you might just say to yourself in your head, you know, as you walk past people, I owe you. I owe you. And then to really seriously consider ways that you might be able to share the good news with them. Paul saw himself as in debt to everyone. It's a challenge for all of us. And last, we see that we're to protect the recipients of grace. The recipients of grace. So having laid to rest the question of the gospel, declaring that it's by salvation... Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone. And having confirmed Paul and Barnabas and Titus as partners in ministry, the last thing, the last exhortation that the Jerusalem counselor gave them was to care for the recipients of grace. It says this in verse 10. Their only suggestion was that we keep on helping the poor, which I've always been eager to do. Now we know from from Acts, that Paul was passionate to extend grace to the poor. He'd already done that. He'd been to Jerusalem to help bring financial resources to take care of them. He was so eager to follow the example of Jesus. You know, and Jesus himself, if you remember back to when he stood in the temple, he opened the book of Isaiah about the prophecy of the Messiah, and he read this verse. In Luke 4, 18 and 19, it tells us this. The Spirit of the Lord, Jesus wrote, is upon me, for he's anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, the blind will see, and the oppressed will be set free, and the time of the Lord's favor has come. And he told them that he had fulfilled that prophecy. The dramatic spread of the Christian faith in the early years of the church was due a lot in the part that Christians took it upon themselves to extend love and compassion and need and help to those in need. And one of the greatest examples of this came in 252 AD. There was a devastating plague that completely 
showered the entire Roman Empire. At the height of the pandemic, which is believed to have been smallpox, as many as 5,000 people a day died in Rome alone. People were fleeing the city. They were casting family members out of their homes. They were driving out the sick and the diseased. And a Christian pastor named Cyprian, he drew the Christians together in the town square. And he said to them, if we're going to live like Jesus, then I call you to fan out throughout this town and to give all according to their need, even those who are not Christians. And that's exactly what they did. You know, and even though the plague was blamed upon the Christians by most of the Roman leaders, this sacrificial action of Christians going out and being susceptible to their own death, proving that Christianity was worth dying for, helped spread the gospel faster than wildfire. And they did all this with great joy. This is a quote from Cyprian. He said this, What a grandeur of spirit it is to struggle with all the powers of an unshaken mind against so many onsets of devastation and death. What sublimity to stand erect amid the desolation of the human race and not lie prostrate with those who have no hope in God, but rather to rejoice that in thus bravely showing forth our faith and by suffering endured, going forward to Christ by the narrow way that Christ trod, we may receive the reward of his life and faith according to his own judgment. You know, it's said that Cyprian's last words just a few years later before he was beheaded for his faith in Jesus were, thanks be to God. (laughs) Now, I'm so challenged by our Christian forefathers and, and sisters who laid everything down for Jesus. They were such incredible models of Christ's grace, and they impacted the world around them. It's interesting that the Roman emperor Julian, who hated Christianity, he said this, the success of the Christians lies in their charity to everyone. They take care of the poor, not only their own. When we truly understand grace, what it really is, you see, then we embrace the poor because we identify with them. You know, we come to Jesus in a similar way that an impoverished child comes for food with desperation. There's a great old hymn called Rock of Ages that expresses our spiritual poverty. It says this, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, Wash me, Savior, or I die. Pastor Tim Keller said this. Only if you see that you've been saved graciously by someone who owes you the opposite will you go out into the world looking to help absolutely anyone in need. So we've seen how we're to protect the unity of grace and the message of grace, the responsibility of grace, and the recipients of grace. Grace is for all of us. So for those of you who are here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, God's word says to you, it doesn't matter what your background is, where you've been, what you've done. Jesus is 
for you. He's for you. You only have to receive his grace that he offers to you freely. Simply trust Jesus as your savior and come to him. He will set you free. Say to Jesus, I receive you as my savior. I trust in you. I need you. Take over my life and make make it what you want it to be. And to those of you who are my brothers and sisters in Christ, Jesus has set you free. He set you free. God loved you and accepted you when you were his enemy. And so doesn't it make sense that he still loves you as you stumble and fall and try to work out your salvation? God sees you as complete in Christ. You're accepted as his beloved child. And you've been given a new heart with new desires and follow that spirit within you, the Holy Spirit, and live in that grace. Experience the abundant life that God has given you. Let's pray. (laughs) Oh, Lord, we are so grateful for grace. And I pray, God, that you help us to recognize the symptoms of legalism, God, when when we tend to get critical and and we tend to be poisoned and, and tired and we tend to compare ourselves to others and feel defeated. And God, we release that and instead rest in the grace that you've given us. Lord, I pray that you lead those who are longing to be free to you, that they would receive grace from you free gifts, that you died for their sins, and they would embrace that and receive the spirit that you give us to live a life of abundance and free and joy. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.